It, it's all about Jesus, right? It's all about grab your seat, grab your Bible, because we're going to Jesus. Uh, thank you so much, worship team. Let it be all about Jesus. We're going to have it be that way today. Turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Uh, we've been going through chapters 4 and 5. We're now entering 6. Chapters 4 and 5 have been so much. Mark has been writing about, uh, Jesus has been doing amazing things and he's been writing about people's responses to that. What's really interesting about today, uh, just six verses we're going to be hitting on today, is that uh, Mark now talks about Jesus' response to their responses. And uh, it's quite amazing, and uh, Frank, I'll just say quite sad, um, but also quite enlightening in it. Now, we're at six verses. That's not very much text. Uh, we're going to just read that, and today is going to be shorter. Uh, this is my fifth sermon so far this weekend. In the last two days, I'm running on fumes, so we're going for about 30 minutes because I'm going to be in the fetal position in about 35 <laughs> Um, and you may be saying, hey, uh, that's just a plot to get to the Colts game early. Hey, God bless us. All right? Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, let's read. Follow along with me. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Let's read it all, and then we'll come back and walk it through. Verse 1. Uh, he went away from there, and he came to his hometown. Where is he at? His hometown. He's with his homeboys. And his disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? Uh, what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph, and uh, Judas and Simon? And are, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. God, I pray as we dig into this passage, just as we sing that fantastic song, let it be all about you. And part of letting it be all of you includes the reality of us even understanding the heart of you. May I even say the emotions of you, the perspective of you. I just ask, Lord, in these next uh, minutes that we have together in your word that you would show through and we would see more of you. And that as we see more of you, it would change who we are how we do life for you. So more of you, Lord, more of you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's begin working here. Verses one and two. He went away from there. Uh, in other words, it's moving on from the context. There were four prior uh, events taking place that we've been through in, in four Sundays. And he went away from there and he came to his hometown. He's in Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth. Nazareth, by the way, not a big town. This is not Indianapolis. This is like, I don't even want to insult anyone. Uh, so this, <laughs> living in a smaller town. This is small town. Okay, this is small town world. Uh, he went away from there, came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Uh, that's different. His disciples followed him. I'll tell you why that's different here in just a minute. And on the Sabbath, 
uh, he began to teach in the synagogue. The synagogue. Synagogue is like a local church. It's a small town. This is the local church. It's not the temple. It's not where they do the sacrifices. It's the synagogue of the people in the community. It's in his own town. In light of this, turn to Luke chapter 4, a few pages to the right in your Bible. Luke chapter 4. Because a year earlier, there was a homecoming where Jesus came back about a year earlier. And you need to understand this in order to kind of understand some of the setting and what's taking place here. So Luke chapter 4, let me uh, start at verse 16. It says, and he came to Nazareth uh, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, was Jesus' custom, he uh, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he enrolled it in the scroll and found the place where it was written. And he read out of that passage, verses 18 and 19 there, verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. You got it? So there's like, hey, uh, uh, Jesus, you read. Okay, here's the scroll of Isaiah. Okay, he turns to a specific passage and he reads that passage and then he just sits down and... uh, Gives it back to the attendant. He sits down and then verse 20. And the eyes of the, all the synagogue were fixed on him. It's kind of one of those moments like. Uh, what just happened? Like what was that about? Uh, right there. Verse 21. And he began to say to them. Uh, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. <laughs> okay. Uh, they weren't so happy about it. Because go down to verse 28, when they heard these things, uh, the, the, some conversation, all the synagogue were filled with wrath, and that's not good, and they rose up and they drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which, uh, on which their town was built, and so that they could throw him down off the cliff. But passing through the midst, he went away. They wanted to kill him. Like, uh, that, that reading this moment, that was beautiful, not It's like that reading this moment. What was the deal with that? In fact, that was so offensive. Let's walk the boy out off the cliff. That's what was going on. That was about a year earlier. Now we come a year later, turn back to Mark chapter 6. And we come back about, we're ahead about a year later. And what do we find out? He comes back home. Is this the the only time in that period of time that he came back? We don't know. We just know that this is the second time he's coming back or the time after that. He's coming back after that. And there we find him. There he comes on the Sabbath. By the way, one of the things that's different with him coming to his town is he has a posse of disciples with him. And one of the things we don't understand in our culture was in that day, a a rabbi would have a posse of disciples and he would walk into his hometown or into towns that way. And so what's different about this account is versus the first one. In the first one, it was just Jesus. Now in the second one, it's Jesus plus the disciples. This posse's walking in town. Everybody understood, got the image that this is like you're, you're walking and doing everything like a rabbi dude. And so I don't know why, but they allowed him to read again. A year ago, they wanted to kill him. And now they're allowing him to read in the Sabbath, uh, on the Sabbath in the synagogue. Very likely they have been hearing some things happening with this Jesus homeboy guy. And so something's gone on where like, let's have a, let's try that again. We'll give you a second chance. And so here Jesus goes. He goes on the Sabbath. He's teaching in his synagogue and the one that he grew up in and, uh, And by the way, Mark doesn't tell us anything that he taught. 
What did you think that would be important? But here's one of the deals. Mark, in his, he's always about the action and the responses to the action. We have no idea if Jesus read anything, exactly what he taught. He just taught on that Sunday. Mark tells us about it. And here, Mark is leading to allow us to see Jesus' response to their responses. So here we go. There's some responses. Uh, verse 2, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. They were amazed. They were like blown away. And they were saying, here's five questions. Where did this man get these things? That's a good question. Question number two, what is the wisdom given to him? Now, in the first question, that could be cynical or that could be positive. In other words, like blown away, like, whoa, dude, where did you get these teachings? It also could be like, uh, man, that's a bunch of whack. Like, what's the deal here? And so in it, uh, we find out with the second question that it's not the negative side of it. It's the positive side because they're going, not only is he teaching amazing things, but there is wisdom behind the teaching. The data may be true, but sometimes there's not wisdom with the data. And yet here they're going, picking up that he's teaching information. And this information just is filled with this bucket load of wisdom behind it. These are amazed people with what they're hearing. Third question, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Well, it's interesting because we don't see anything told about him doing any works. So two things either happen. Once the mighty works happened before uh, he was teaching it on the Sabbath in the synagogue there, or, and I think for sure is the case, they've heard that this Jesus guy over the last year has been doing some amazing things of which we've seen a number of them in the, in the gospel so far. And so they're hearing about one of their own guys and they're connecting. The first time he was here, like, we didn't like it. But you know what? This guy's like doing some amazing things. What is going on with him? How is he doing this? Let's let's think about these first three questions. Because I think these first three questions are fantastic questions. And frankly, I think these first three questions are questions that everybody should be asking. Everybody should be considering. Everybody should be thinking about and coming to a resolution with. These are questions also about what was happening right before them. Uh, and in the present time, like what question, like the knowledge, the wisdom, and the things that you've been doing are amazing. What's going on with this guy? Now, have you had maybe... From your growing up, I moved quite a bit, so um, I don't have a whole lot of experience with this. I haven't kept in touch with a lot of friends from when I was a little kid, but maybe you have. Are there any people that you know of that when you were a kid, you're like, I can't believe they're doing that now? Like, let's put up a picture here. This is just back when uh, I think I was about in fourth grade, or I don't remember. Um, I'm number 21, top right. The guy with the sap droopy shoulders looking like he had a bad day. <laughs> like, what's the deal with that, man? <laughs> it's like, don't take my picture. <laughs> anyway, so that, that was our team. We really did. We, I mean, that looks like the bad news bears. <laughs> but actually, we like won the championship. There's a whole story behind that. Anyway, um, let me just kind of bring back a couple of these. That was, that's my dad. and That's my middle brother, um, David. I <laughs> look at that and I just go, seriously? Well, I just I want to bring a couple people in here from this. If you would have told me that my middle brother, when he grew up, would be a multimillionaire, I never in my life ever would have thought that was the case. 
ever. Trust me, ever. Let me bring another one up, um, and I'm not quite sure with something. Number seven, the guy bottom, uh, center number seven, George Shepard. I don't know the other guy's names, but I know George. Bless his heart. George could not. George could throw his glove further than he could throw a baseball. <laughs> George was the guy, was out in right field, <laughs> and uh, he literally at times he didn't know which hand to put his glove on. And bless his heart. I don't know, nowadays... He's probably some mad scientist like inventing crazy wild things. Uh, uh, Phil, number 36, he was our pitcher. I was the catcher. Phil was the pitcher. Phil could throw faster than anybody. And that's the only reason we won a lot of games. And so I loved catching because Phil would throw the ball so fast that the, you could see the other kids stepping away when he would throw it because they were scared to death. And I thought it was cool because he made me feel cool. Because I was right there. But Phil um, was one of those guys that had an amazing talent. Yet um, I genuinely wonder if Phil is, because of some things, if Phil is either like uh, really an awesome adult or on America's Most Wanted list. I have no idea. But do you ever wonder? But I will tell you this. If any of them, I caught up with them later, came back and said, hey, by the way, um, I'm giving the illusion that I am a great teacher and I am the Messiah, I would think they would be nuts. And for maybe some good reasons. But I just want to bring into the reality of it for you and I, we can kind of get down on the peeps here in Nazareth with Jesus' homeboys, if you will. And yet I just bring into it, he grew up with them. And he's coming back and he's presenting himself as a rabbi. Now, let's work a little bit more here. And so what they did is the three questions are based off of what was happening then. His teaching is amazing. His wisdom is stunning. And the things that he is doing are unexplainable. But then the next two go in not so much what's happening now, but go backwards. Okay? Let's take a look at them. Uh, Question number four is, is not this the carpenter? Remember, they're going connecting back to the olden days. Isn't this the carpenter? And by the way, that is in no way any kind of derogatory statement. They, they are just going like this. Wait, he was the carpenter guy. And carpenter people at that time were very hands-on people, actually incredibly skilled people. Uh, carpenters in that day knew everybody in the town. And Nazareth was not a big town at all. And so everybody knew Jesus because he was a key carpenter in the area. And so he would go around and not only involved in like making tables or doing other kinds of things, but if anything happened with any of the farm implements when people were, Jesus would be called out and he was working tools and doing things to make farming implements. So this was not any kind of derogatory, like blue collar kind of a, you know, uh, smackdown kind of conversation. They're just connecting. He was a carpenter and know this, carpenters, did not end up being rabbis. Okay? And, and I say that because there were, there were, it was a process for becoming someone who came across as, as, as a rabbi like, and those were rabbinic schools in the day. You had to go somewhere, and they're like, he's a carpenter. What, what like rabbinic school did you, what seminary did you go to? And they're just connecting something. So is this not the carpenter? That's fine. And then the next statement, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? 
Now, there's a few things with this here. Mary, uh, by the way, uh, calling uh, someone, especially a male in that day, the son of the mom was not the normal thing. Two things most likely either happened. Either this is one more piece of evidence that his dad, Joseph, had died. And so dad's no longer around. But we even see in uh, an ancient literature that even when the dad dies, people generally call them by their dad's name, even if the dad has passed away. But yet there were times when that happened. So it could be either way. So it could be saying that they're referring to the mother uh, in that because dad's dead. We, we don't quite know with that. I, I'm, I'm, I think it's actually more likely this. Mary. Joseph may have been dead at the time. But let's go back to the story of Mary. Before Joseph and Mary were married, Mary was with child. And Jesus was born technically before they were technically married in the whole scheme of everything going on. And you live in a small town back in that day. Oh my. Mary had a name. And I'm just going to say this, and we don't talk like this outside of here, but I'm going to say it the way it was probably said in the day because it's a truth statement, but I'm also going to be careful about this in it as I say it. But here's probably what was going around town. He is the bastard son of that whore. That's more likely what is going on here. Hey, wait a second. He's the carpenter. Oh, yeah. He's that son of Mary. And also, and aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? I mean, they're all normal guys. Where do you see the rabbis coming out of these boys? I'm going to say this. I don't think that's a bad question. Maybe not appropriate fully so. But it's a question that's going back to the past on where he's coming from. By the way, in the Greek, the way it's ordered here, there is a fifth question. And I'm not quite sure if the fifth question is a continuation of the fourth question. But it says, are not his sisters here with us? And it could be a continuation of the other one. Well, aren't his brothers this and aren't his sisters with us? But I'm just going to put out here that I think maybe what's going on is part of in the question as they're asking all this is they're bringing us back to what was actually said in Mark chapter 3 when we were there where it was said that even his family, the text tells us in Mark chapter 3, even his family thought he was out of his mind. And it's kind of like almost this potential idea that, well, those are his mom and his brothers and his sisters. Let's bring them here because they think he's out of his mind. And they're asking these questions. And again, I'm not going to push back hard like you should never ask those kinds of questions, guys, of him at the time. I think they're viable questions coming out of the history. But here's what happens. They don't answer the three here and now questions, they get stuck on the past two questions. What we're going to see, they never answer the where did he get this information, how does he have this wisdom, and how has he done these three things. They've never answered that. They've let the past questions trump the present questions. By the way, I just want to say, if you're someone that has a a past, I just want for you to know, in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. And if you're kind of like, man, no, no, nobody, no, nobody who knew me 
my family, others who knew me from when I had my past and I had a sordid kind of a, you know, I could tell you all the stuff I've done kind of thing. None of them are going to let that go. Guess what? Jesus Christ knows exactly what you're talking about. That's sweet, but it's hard. So they ask these five questions, and these five questions are followed by a response at the end of verse 3. It's just six words, and they took offense at him. They took offense at him. Why? I think we could think of some ideas, but I don't know. Jealousy? Anger? Come on, dude, you're a carpenter. And that's not a derogatory, but it's more like carpenters don't become rabbis. It's kind of come back here. You come back here with your posse. I know where you come from. You're that son of Mary. And I know about your past. And you come walking into town like you're some kind of hot dude and with a posse going on. I'm offended. That's not the way it works around here, my friend, because we know you. And so they make a choice. They don't deny the facts of the first three questions ever, but they choose to hold on to the latter two. I just want to ask a question of you. Are you hanging on to perceptions of Jesus or facts about Jesus? Uh, Do you believe what you believe because that's what mom and dad believed? Do, Do you believe what you believe about Jesus, about the Bible? Because of what other people in in school have told you or others have told you? Do, Do you have questions? Ask questions. Questions are good. God never is found essentially saying, listen, don't ask good questions because I'm offended by it. Jesus was not offended, if you will, by any questions. But but what ends up we're going to find happening here is he's grieved by the fact that they don't dig into the real questions. And they make their life and eternal decisions based on perceptions, not on facts. Do you know why Jesus is who he is? I mean, not because mom and dad told you, not because your Sunday school class told you, but do you know? Do do you know why this book is so vastly different than any other book on the planet? Do you know why this book is different than the Quran or different than the Buddha Bible or different than Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormon Bible? Do you know why? If you don't, I'm inviting you. It's time to come to understand why. And if you don't know where to go or how to get at it to find out some of that, I'm not going to answer those questions right now. I'm just going to leave them on the table. Dig into it. Come and ask. We'd love to give you some information. We'd love to point to you some ways. But I, I want you to be thinking. And not on percepting, but thinking. Have you drilled into the questions about Jesus? Ask the good questions. The Lord invites your questions. Uh, verse 3, and they took offense at him. So now it's Jesus' time to respond. And here's what he says, verse 4 and following. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not do mighty, do, and he could do no mighty work there, except that he did lay his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Three things. Verse 4. 
he acknowledges the reality of their rejection of him. And know this by what he's saying. They are not rejecting, term it this way, their bud. It's not about rejecting one of their, their baseball team players. It's not, it's not a horizontal rejection in Jesus' view. This is a vertical rejection. And Jesus is bringing in the Old Testament to help them. Listen, what's really going on is Jesus is addressing the fact that they are rejecting Yahweh's work among them. This is not a personal thing as much as it is a rejection of the Lord thing that's going on. Because he's bringing an Old Testament prophet discussion here. This is a rejection of what God is doing. Secondly, verse 5, God's work is brought to a halt around unbelief. Now, I could spend some time on that, but I'm going to kind of leave it there. Think about this, you guys. The power and the presence of God is essentially withdrawn when unbelief is the undergirding reality. I'm just asking the question in my life, in this church's life, and I'm asking in your life, how much have we missed out on of what the Lord could do because of our unbelief? How much might we have missed out? How much might we be missing out because we struggle to believe that the Lord is sovereign and good and in control and powerful and mighty and at work. I have a hard time spending too much time thinking on that. That hurts. Verse 6, and Jesus' response, he marveled at their unbelief. Guys, you're missing it. It's like, guys, you're you're losing out. Don't, Don't you just feel Jesus just like sad? I mean, as you go through this text, I don't think Jesus is like, I'm gonna bring out the swords and yeah, I'm coming at you. I think you just see a savior that is brokenhearted over the unbelief of people and even his own hometown. By the way, only twice in the Bible are we told that Jesus is amazed. One is Luke 6, where he refers to the Roman centurion that Jesus is amazed at his faith. And the other is here, that Jesus is amazed at their unfaith and it's sad they missed it friends I think far too often we try to make the Lord make sense before we can trust him I have to know why God has allowed this in my life I have to have it written out. I have to have it clear. I have to understand it before I can believe God. There's no faith in that. There's no faith in that. 
you are not going to wake up tomorrow and have a post-it note telling you, explaining to you from the Lord exactly why he's allowed what's going on in your life to go on right now. Just know that. But he has told us in his word that he has allowed the things he's allowed into our life to grow us in him, to mature us, to help us to see him bigger, to help us to see him better, to allow us to be able to minister to other people, whether that's now or in the future. God's got it all figured out. Our deal is, are we okay? Is Jesus big enough for your questions? And is Jesus big enough for even some of your questions to go unanswered and still follow him and be okay with that? It's hard, isn't it? Just be honest, it's hard. And yet, uh, Jesus is like, listen, see me, just see me, know me. I mean, they were already, the guy teaches amazing things, teaches, has wisdom beyond anything they've ever seen, is doing amazing kinds of things, and no one's digging into that. And yet, how often do I, do we do the same thing? Maybe you're struggling with unbelief in who Jesus is. He just can't be who he says he is. Hey, I want for you to know uh, the Lord is big enough to receive the challenge and to be asked the question. He has written a book that tells you all about him to give you the information about who he is and why he has come and what it's all about. And if you don't know what that's all about, it's time to dig in. Because don't leave the question unanswered because the question is an eternal question. If you don't know who Jesus is, it's time to find out. And I just want to invite you into the process. It's time to know. Not about what your parents told you. Not about what other people told you. But who is Jesus? you got to get that answer. Uh, If you're struggling with unbelief on who Jesus is, I invite you to step into the process. Also, if you're struggling to believe what Jesus can do or is doing or will do, you need to dive in. And hear what he has to say. If you're struggling in unbelief, Jesus invites you to ask the questions. But don't ask the questions if you're really not willing to put the legwork to go seek the answers. Otherwise, you're really not asking questions, you're just playing. How big is Jesus to you? Can he do what you're wondering about? Is he really in control of your situation? Can he make sense out of things? Does he really hear you? Can he really see you? Does he really understand what's going on? Can he really redeem you? Can he really bring change in you? Can he replace your despair with joy? Is he big enough to be able to do that? Is he big enough to be able to move your sordid past to a brand new present? Is he really big enough to be able to give you purpose in a purposelessness life that you may have been living? So I want to finish with this. It's 30 minutes and I'm about to fall into fetal position. (laughs) Right now, what is the thing that you are struggling in unbelief with? I'm serious, right now. I want for you to be thinking, we're going to take a minute or so. What is the thing going on in your life? The situation in your life? 
the information about who the Lord is. What is the thing that you are struggling with right now in unbelief? God's not big enough to be able to work that. God's not big enough to be able to handle that. I'm struggling to grasp who he is. I'm just struggling to understand. What is it? And I'm going to go quiet for a little bit here. So what is it? I want you to name it. Here's my challenge. What is the thing right now you are struggling with? And with that, I'm calling you to take it to Jesus. And I'm not saying that as some religious platitude statement. But I'm saying, get on your knees because he knows what you're struggling with. Aren't we something else? It's like, ah, I'm not struggling with Jesus. I'm not struggling with nothing. And he's like, I can give you a few. <laughs> you want some help? I'll give you some ideas. And he's like, no, I don't want him to know that I'm really struggling. <laughs> oh, yeah, I have no idea what's going on. It's like, whenever people come to him, Mark chapter 9, we'll see here in a while. Jesus, the guy says, Help me in my unbelief. Name it and take it to him. Name it and take it to him. And if you need some help understanding what God has to say about some of your questions, talk to your small group leader. Come and talk to us. But not to ask the question and not to pursue the answers to that question is lazy. And our Lord just goes, how sad is that? They had the right questions on the table, but they weren't interested in the answers. Lord, I'm going to leave it there. Um, Lord, the fact of the matter is we struggle to really even to begin to grasp how big you are. And sometimes we kind of throw up our hands in the fear of failure, in feeling failed it's struggling and Lord every time in the scripture when I see someone who comes to you in sincerity and who is struggling with a, 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 a thinking issue or a life issue and they come before you with sincerity and with true interest you always respond with 
joy in that. You know how feeble we are. And God, too often we, in our familiarity with you, we become blind to who you really are. We get caught up in our circumstances and we miss the God of our circumstances. Lord, there just has to be some people in this room today that are really struggling in unbelief. Unbelief possibly in who you are. Unbelief in possibly having to do with what in the world are you doing? God, with them in particular, I just pray you would be sweet. And I pray for them that they would pursue the questions to be answered. How sad it is that as we see the story, there is not one person from his hometown that came after him to ask him for more information on the first three questions. They had the opportunity, but they didn't take it. Lord, we need you. Too often we think we can do it on our own. Show us our unbelief. Lord, help us in our unbelief. Lord, may we pursue your word to be able to know the one in whom we have believed. You are amazing. Precious name of Jesus, we pray.